Welcome to the June 10th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today's podcast includes a study demonstrating low rates of response to the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine among patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. We will also review a study looking at associations between post-transplantation cyclophosphamide and cytomegalovirus infection, according to donor source. Finally, we'll look at new research indicating that abnormal venous calf muscle pump function in the legs is a risk factor for venous thromboembolism, or VTE, and a predictor of all-cause mortality. Our first research article is entitled Efficacy of the BNT162B2 mRNA COVID-19 Vaccine in Patients with Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia by Yair Hirishanu of Tel Aviv Sarovsky Medical Center in Israel and colleagues. The authors report that in patients with CLL, antibody response to this COVID-19 vaccine is markedly impaired and is impacted by disease activity and treatment. Patients with CLL are prone to developing infections due to immune defects, both from their disease and as a result of treatment. These patients exhibit reduced responses to pneumococcal vaccine, hepatitis B vaccine, and other vaccines, possibly due to the abnormal humoral and cellular immune responses that result from deregulation of the immune system in CLL. Earlier in the pandemic, High rates of severe COVID-19 disease and mortality were reported for both treated and untreated patients with CLL. Unfortunately, patients with CLL and other malignancies were excluded from pivotal trials of COVID-19 vaccines. Accordingly, Hiroshanu and colleagues evaluated antibody-mediated response to BNT162B2, the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA COVID-19 vaccine, in patients with CLL. This prospective study included adult patients with CLL with no history of SARS-CoV-2 infection. The patients received vaccine through the National Israeli Vaccination Program and were followed at a medical center in Tel Aviv. Researchers also recruited healthy adult volunteers as a control group. The primary endpoint of the study was the proportion of patients who acquired anti-SARS-CoV-2 antibodies. A total of 167 CLL patients and 52 age and sex-matched controls were enrolled from December 2020 through February 2021. The median age of CLL patients was 71 years. About 35% were treatment-naive, 45% were on active therapy, 14% were previously treated, and 6% were experiencing disease relapse following previous treatment. Hiroshanu and co-investigators found that only 66 of 167 patients, or 39.5%, exhibited an antibody-mediated response. Response rates were significantly lower in CLL patients than in the control group. In the sex and age-matched analysis, which included 52 of the CLL patients and the 52 control subjects, Response rates were 52% and 100% respectively, with a p-value less than 0.001. Among the CLL patients, response rates varied according to treatment status. Treatment-naive patients had a higher response rate of 55.2% 
as compared to just 16% in actively treated patients, nearly all of whom were receiving novel therapy. The antibody response rate was 16% for patients receiving BTK inhibitor monotherapy with ibrutinib or acalabrutinib. The response rate was similarly low at 13.6% for those receiving venetoclax, either as monotherapy or with an anti-CD20 antibody, either rituximab or obinutuzumab. Response rates varied by timing of anti-CD20 antibody exposure. There were zero responses among patients who had received anti-CD20 antibody therapy within the last 12 months, as compared to 45.5% of those exposed more than 12 months prior to vaccination. Of note, the response rate was comparably high, at 79.2%, for 24 patients who had completed treatment and maintained response at the time of vaccination. Serologic response rate was very high, at 94.1%, for those who completed treatment more than 12 months prior to vaccination, versus 50% for those completing therapy within 12 months of vaccination. No patients developed COVID-19 infection at a median follow-up of 75 days since the first vaccine dose. In her accompanying commentary, Barbara Eichhorst of the University of Cologne in Germany highlights how the study confirms that the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine, like vaccines in general, elicits low rates of serologic response in patients with CLL. Previous studies have demonstrated that due to B-cell defects and frequent hypogammaglobulinemia, patients with CLL have impaired serologic response to antibacterial or antiviral vaccines. In this regard, low response rates, in the range of 8% to 42%, have been reported. The findings of the present study are also extremely relevant to daily clinical practice for patients with CLL who are considering COVID-19 vaccination, according to Eichhorst. The vaccine was well-tolerated, which means treatment-naive patients with CLL shouldn't postpone vaccination unless access is limited. For patients who require treatment, choice of regimen does not seem to affect COVID-19 vaccine response rates, which are low across the board while the patient remains on treatment. That said, the choice of treatment probably does matter when considering the best time to undergo COVID-19 vaccination or receive a booster dose. According to this study, the optimal time appears to be after treatment is discontinued and the patient is in remission. Further studies are needed to determine when and how often booster doses should be given in patients with CLL, as well as data on T-cell responses following vaccination, which also play a large role in immunity. For our listeners, CME questions for this article are available on the Blood website at bloodjournal.org. Next, let's turn to a research article entitled Post-Transplant Cyclophosphamide, PTSI, is associated with increased cytomegalovirus infection, a CIBMTR analysis by Scott Goldsmith of the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri, and colleagues. In this study, PTSI increased risk of CMV infection regardless of donor source. The researchers also found that in these patients, CMV infection may negate the chronic graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD, protective effect of PTSI, suggesting that aggressive prevention strategies should be strongly considered. CMV infection is linked to poor outcomes following allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation, or HCT, 
despite preemptive therapy and prophylaxis. Furthermore, CMV seropositivity and reactivation have been associated with increased non-relapse mortality and decreased overall survival in a recent Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research, or CIB-MTR, analysis. However, that analysis excluded haploidentical HCT, and post-transplant cyclophosphamide made up less than 1% of GVHD prophylaxis. In the present study, Goldsmith and colleagues queried the CIB-MTR database to determine whether haploidentical donor source, or PTSI, conferred a higher risk of CMV infection. They compared CMV incidence across three cohorts, haploidentical HCT with PTSI, matched sibling donor transplantation with PTSI, and matched sibling donor transplantation with calcineurin inhibitor, or CNI, based GVHD prophylaxis. This retrospective registry study included all patients reported to the CIB-MTR who had received their first transplant for acute myeloid leukemia, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or myelodysplastic syndrome between 2012 and 2017. Three major analyses were performed. First, investigators determined the incidence of blood CMV DNA viral load and CMV disease by day 180 in the aforementioned three cohorts. Next, they subdivided these cohorts based on serostatus into three groups. One, recipient positive. Two, donor positive, recipient negative. And three, donor negative, recipient positive. Recipient positive patients were grouped together based on previous CIB-MTR data showing similar incidence of CMV infection and one-year transplant outcomes regardless of donor status. Finally, they examined the impact of CMV DNA viral load on transplant-related outcomes. Incidence of CMV DNA viral load was significantly higher in both cohorts receiving PTSI compared to the sibling with CNI cohort. Most CMV DNA viremia was seen by day 100, with a cumulative incidence of 40% for haploidentical with PTSI, 36% for sibling with PTSI, and 21% for sibling with CNI. Median time to CMV infection was significantly different between groups, at 38 days for haploidentical with PTSI, 32 days for sibling with PTSI, and 42 days for sibling with CNI. CMV organ disease cumulative incidence was low, at 2.8% for haploidentical with PTSI, 3.4% for sibling with PTSI, and 1.4% for sibling with CNI. Looking at the impact of donor-recipient CMV serostatus on CMV infection, the authors found that CMV infection risk was highest among CMV seropositive recipients but also significantly higher in PTSI recipients, regardless of donor source. In the recipient-positive subgroup, the univariate cumulative incidence of CMV DNA viremia by day 100 was 51%, 48%, and 29% for the haploidentical PTSI, sibling PTSI, and sibling CNI cohorts, respectively. In multivariable analysis, the recipient-positive subgroup had a considerably higher risk of CMV infection compared to the reference cohort of donor-negative, recipient-negative sibling PTSI cases. Hazard ratios were 50, 48, and 24 for the recipient-positive haploidentical PTSI, sibling PTSI, and sibling CNI groups, respectively. 
Worse non-relapse mortality and overall survival was noted for CMV seropositive recipients and those developing CMV infection in the haploidentical with PTSI cohort. Compared to the reference cohort, the recipient-positive haploidentical PTSI group had a higher risk of non-relapse mortality with a hazard ratio of 2.4 in multivariable analysis. Within two years of transplant, deaths occurred in 49.5% of the haploidentical with PTSI, 44.4% of sibling with PTSI, and 46.9% of sibling with CNI cohorts. Infections were the primary or secondary cause of death in 38% of the haploidentical PTSI cohort, significantly higher than the 27% seen in both the sibling cohorts. In multivariable analysis, recipient seropositivity was linked to inferior overall survival regardless of donor source or receipt of PTSI. CMV serostatus didn't have any impact on relapse by two years in any study cohort. Interestingly, while PTSI was linked to lower incidence of chronic GVHD overall, CMV in PTSI recipients was significantly associated with higher incidence of chronic GVHD. In other words, the chronic GVHD protective effect of PTSI was preserved only in those PTSI recipients who did not develop CMV infection. This study is the first to suggest that CMV infection may negate the prophylactic role of PTSI in the prevention of chronic GVHD. Taken together, this study strongly suggests that PTSI is a significant contributing factor in the development of CMV infection, regardless of donor source, a finding that was most pronounced in CMV seropositive patients. In addition, the combination of haploidentical donor and PTSI appeared to be synergistic for higher non-relapse mortality and lower survival. Based on those data, all PTSI CMV seropositive recipients or those with a seropositive donor should be considered to be at high risk for CMV infection, and prophylaxis should be strongly considered. The final research article is entitled Reduced calf muscle pump function is a risk factor for venous thromboembolism, a population-based cohort study, by Damon Houghton of Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and colleagues. The calf muscle pump is a major contributor to the return of venous blood from the lower extremities to the right side of the heart. The volume of blood ejected with calf muscle contraction is called calf pump function, or CPF, which can be measured with toe lifts done in an upright setting using venous plethysmography. Reduced CPF has been linked to chronic venous insufficiency and poor wound healing, and is known to be an independent predictor of all-cause mortality. Reduced CPF indicates an inability to efficiently expel blood from the lower extremities, leading to venous stasis. Accordingly, reduced CPF is a plausible risk factor for VTE. However, potential associations between reduced CPF and VTE have not been previously studied. In the present population-based study, Houghton and colleagues evaluated the risk of deep vein thrombosis, or DVT, and pulmonary embolism, or PE, in residents of Olmsted County, Minnesota, using venous plethysmography data from the Mayo Clinic Vascular Laboratory between 1998 and 2015. Patients with a history of VTE were excluded. The primary outcome was a composite of any incident VTE, 
including proximal and distal DVT and PE. Patients were divided into three groups, bilateral reduced CPF, unilateral reduced CPF, and normal CPF. The evaluable cohort consisted of 1,532 patients with venous plethysmography and CPF data. The median age was approximately 64 years, 69% were female, and the median BMI approached 29. Altogether, about 39% of subjects had normal CPF, while 23% had unilateral reduced CPF, and 38% had bilateral reduced CPF. While older average age and increased prevalence of certain medical comorbidities were present in those with reduced CPF compared to those with normal CPF, there was no difference in median BMI across the groups, nor prevalence of myocardial infarction, cerebrovascular disease, dementia, chronic pulmonary disease, or rheumatologic disorders. With a median follow-up of nearly 12 years, VTEs occurred in 87 out of 1,532 patients, or 5.7%. Incidence rates of VTE per 100,000 years were 274 for patients with bilateral normal CPF, 380 for patients with unilateral reduced CPF, and 556 for patients with bilateral reduced CPF. Bilateral reduced CPF was associated with increased VTE incidence, while unilateral reduced CPF was not associated with increased frequency of VTE. For individuals with bilateral reduced CPF compared to those with bilateral normal CPF, the unadjusted hazard ratio for subsequent VTE was 2.0. However, after adjusting for age, sex, BMI, and Charlson comorbidity index, Bilateral reduced CPF was not found to be an independent risk factor for VTE or DVT alone. In a secondary analysis, each leg evaluated was categorized as reduced or normal CPF, and ipsilateral DVT outcomes were then evaluated per leg. The adjusted hazard ratio for ipsilateral DVT was evaluated in 3,064 legs comparing legs with reduced to normal CPF and was 1.71 with a 95% confidence interval of 1.03 to 2.84. A total of 352 patients, or 23%, died over the study period, with a cumulative incidence of 11%, 22.4%, and 35.4% for the normal, unilateral reduced, and bilateral reduced CPF groups, respectively. Mortality was significantly higher in the bilateral and unilateral reduced CPF groups compared to the normal CPF group. In their accompanying commentary, doctors Andrea Obi and Thomas Wakefield of the University of Michigan write that although more than 40 risk factors have been included in VTE risk assessment models, calf muscle pump dysfunction per se has not been one of them. The current study indicates that beyond the simple concept of immobility, how efficiently the leg pumps and empties blood need to be considered. There is also the potential that this risk factor could be modified, since calf muscle pump function can be improved with exercise. For example, OB and Wakefield question whether calf muscle function can be used as a clinical adjunct to identify patients requiring prehabilitation before surgery. These data, therefore, offer the promise of a more personalized approach to VTE prevention and treatment. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. 
for CME questions, a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries related to this podcast, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.